Um, so I'm reading from Deuteronomy chapter 19, verses 15 to 21, and it's on page 190 in the Church Bibles. One witness is not enough to convict a man accused of any crime or offence he may have committed. A matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If a malicious witness takes the stand to accuse a man of a crime, the two men involved in the dispute must stand in the presence of the Lord before the priests and the judges who are in office at the time. The judges must make a thorough investigation and if the witness proves to be a liar, giving false testimony against his brother, then do to him as he intended to do to his brother. You must purge the evil from among you. The rest of the people will hear of this and be afraid and never again will such an evil thing be done among you. Show no pity, life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. New Testament readings... Matthew 5, uh, starting from 27 to the end of the chapter, can be found on 959. You have heard it said, do not commit adultery. I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better to lose one part of your body than the whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness causes her to become an adulteress. And anyone who marries the divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it is said to people long ago, do not break your oath, but keep the oaths you have made to the Lord. But I tell you, do not swear at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one white hair or black hair. Simply let your yes be yes and your no be no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. You have heard that is said, eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him take your, your cloak as well. If someone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not, uh, sorry, and, and do not uh, turn away from the one who wants to borrow uh, from you. You have heard that it is said, love your neighbour and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And you may be, son, and you may be sons of the Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. 
If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? And not even the tax collectors doing that. And if you greet only your brother while you are doing, what more are you doing? Sorry, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Well, there was a day coming that I've been dreading. Because yesterday was uh, my daughter's birthday, uh, my daughter Jessica. Turned eight, I heard her say this morning to one of her friends, I just can't believe I feel so young to be eight. (laughs) Anyway, uh, it was her birthday coming up, and so uh, a few weeks ago, uh, well, a couple of weeks ago, Steph and I were talking, what are we going to buy for her birthday? And Steph said, I think it's time we bought her a new bike. And judging from the look that must have come straight away to my face, she very quickly added, don't worry, we'll get one that's already made up at the shop. I thought, okay, let's go and do that. So we went to the shop and we were looking at the bikes and we decided on the bike that we thought would be appropriate for her and there was one made up there and as we looked at it, it just had been knocked about a bit. There were scratches on it and all that sort of stuff. So Steph decided that's not good enough for our daughter. She needs one that's pristine. We'll take the one that's in the box. Thank you very much. Well, come Thursday night... The dreaded moment arrived. While my wife was busy in the kitchen making this beautiful mermaid birthday cake, it was time for me to build the bike. Seven steps, they said. Would I be able to do it? Well, I dutifully got to work. Uh, People that know me well will know that nothing like this comes intuitively to me. This was a stress. I was not looking forward to it. And I'm sure that someone who knew what they were doing would easily have completed the job within an hour. I beavered away and I had a good go and after about three hours I looked and overall I thought, you know what, I've done pretty well, there's one thing left to do but I just couldn't work out how to adjust the brake mechanism properly. Now when you've got an eight-year-old daughter learning to ride a bike with no training wheels and that sort of thing, The brakes are just minorly important, aren't they? So as good as my effort was, it wasn't quite good enough. Now, I was relieved yesterday when my brother-in-law showed up to the birthday lunch. He looked at it and went, oh, yeah, I have lots of trouble with that as well. And then within 10 or 15 minutes, he fixed it. So that was good. Now, I wonder if many people of Jesus' day have that same sort of thought process. You know, I'm having a good go but it's just not quite good enough. And I wonder if, if Jesus' teaching actually exa- sort of made that bigger for them. For years they tried, up to, tried to live up to the righteousness of the Pharisees and teachers of the law, but they could never quite reach that standard and then Jesus comes along and blows them out of the water with his standard and all of a sudden having a crack at a seven-step process to put a bike together has become, you now have to build a house from scratch. The arrival of the kingdom has brought with it a monumental change for the person seeking to live as a disciple of Jesus. Now, last week in the, in the previous few verses, we saw that Jesus upholds the law and the prophets. He did not come to abolish them. He came to fulfill them. The law still stands. And our righteousness is to surpass that. 
of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, and God's standard is actually perfection. Perfection. Jesus didn't abolish the law, he fulfilled the law. Only he can fulfill the moral obligation of the law. Because, and Jesus is the sacrifice, he's the great high priest, his body is the temple, he's the king, he's the servant, he's the shepherd. He fulfills everything that the law and the prophets testified to. And in the new kingdom, we fulfill the law through Jesus. We fulfill the law and the prophets because Jesus has done it and by trusting in him and by listening to his teaching and his words. And then Jesus showed us, using the example of murder, how he deepens the demands of the Old Testament law to what true fulfilment means in heart and in practice. Tonight, we're going to look at five other examples that Jesus gives us. Now, I'm going to say up front, each of these five things could easily be a whole sermon in themselves. But rest assured, I've squeezed it down into one, but it does mean I've had to leave a lot of stuff out that I would like to say if we had five weeks. But we'll do our best. Jesus continues, verse 27, where are Matthew 5? It'd be good to have your Bible open in front of you. We'll work our way through. Verse 27, Jesus says, You've heard that it was said... Do not commit adultery. Now, like the law on murder, righteousness for the Pharisees and the teachers of the law was pretty simple. Hmm, let me think. Have I ever slept with anyone who is not my spouse? No, I've obeyed the law. But listen to Jesus, verse 28. He says, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And so Jesus deepens the application of the law about adultery to include anyone who looks at a woman lustfully. This is the person who, noticing that a woman is attractive and there's nothing wrong with that, goes back for another look, that staring, longing look with lust in his heart. The man who looks at a woman and imagines being with her. The man who gets off looking at images or watching videos. Presumably it works back the other way as well. The woman who looks at the naked torso of a TV star or a movie star or, or, or singer and fantasises about being with him. It includes the person who's imagining being with someone else while they're making love to their spouse. Anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, who isn't guilty here? Don't put your hands up. Now, often we try to deflect those thoughts with excuses, don't we? You know, oh, it's just looking, it's just a bit of window shopping. I'm not really harming anyone. Well, ask your wife what she thinks of your pornography use. I'm not really having sex with her, so I'm not really committing adultery. It's just a bit of harmless fun. They're just excuses, aren't they? And, and, and it's difficult for us as we try to navigate our way in a world obsessed by sex. 
Because there's so many songs, so many TV shows, so many movies are all about satisfying sexual desire and often at the expense of existing relationships. Uh, through, the, through the week, uh, a new TV show made its debut. It's called Kiss, Bang, Love. Did anyone watch it? Good. Uh, this is the premise of the show. Uh, 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 well, there was a lady this week. A lady was blindfolded. And 12 men, one at a time, blindfolded as well, come in and they kiss. And, and based on that, imagine being the 12th guy. Anyway, based on that experience, she gets to choose four. They then remove all their blindfolds and they kiss again. And based on that, she gets to choose two and she goes on a date with them. And based on that experience, she gets to choose one to go away with for five days. And they promote the show by saying it's a social experiment. What are they trying to prove? And don't even get me started on that abhorrent, grotty seven-year switch What a disgraceful thing that is. It's really difficult living in our society and maintaining a kingdom attitude to sex and marriage. It really does make us stand out in the world, doesn't it? But here is one key way where disciples of Jesus can be salt and light in our community. But be warned, because often our faithfulness to Jesus in this will be interpreted as prudish or archaic, sometimes bigoted. But when you believe that all people are made in God's image and all people are equally precious and valuable to him, how dare we treat them as pieces of meat to be exploited? Jesus goes on, verse 29. He says, if your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. What does Jesus mean here? He means we are to deal drastically with sin. We mustn't pamper sin, we mustn't flirt with sin, we mustn't enjoy nibbling around the edges. We're to hate it, to crush it, to dig it out and throw it away. In Colossians 3, Paul says, Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. I mean, this is serious stuff. Sin's not an illness or an aberration. Sin doesn't require medical treatment. Sin needs to be condemned. Sin needs to be rebuked. And sin needs to be repented of because it leads to hell. That's how seriously Jesus treats it. And so that's how seriously we should treat it. Now this discussion of adultery and purity leads on to the question of divorce. 
Now, I realise here that we have people from a variety of situations and circumstances. We know friends or family members who come from a variety of situations and circumstances. And for a number of us, this discussion might be awkward. The issues here have caused many people a great deal of heartache and pain. But we're going to listen to Jesus and we're going to work out how we ought to apply his teaching as disciples in the kingdom of heaven. So have a look at verse 31. Jesus says, It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. Now to Jesus' here is Deuteronomy 24 would have come flooding to mind where a man could give his wife a certificate of divorce if he found some uncleanness in her. Now it's unclear what is meant by uncleanness but when that one word is used one other time in the Old Testament it refers to human defecation. What is clear though is that from Moses' perspective divorce was to be the exception. It wasn't to be the norm. However, by Jesus' day, there were some who were divorcing their wives because she had served food that had been accidentally burned. That made her unclean in some way and so here's a certificate, off you go. What did righteousness look like for the Pharisees and teachers of the law? Well, if I want to divorce my wife, I must ensure I give her a certificate. But what does Jesus say? Have a look at verse 32. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for marital unfaithfulness, causes her to become an adulteress, and anyone who marries the divorced woman commits adultery. Now, in talking about this, I often have people ask me, well, well what about a couple in this situation? Or what about the couple in, in, in this particular circumstance? And indeed, that's exactly what happened in our Bible study when we looked at these verses. But we need to be careful here. The key point of what Jesus says here is not to look for loopholes or to look for circumstances in which it is okay to divorce. The law's not encouraging people to get divorced or to look for ways in which they can do so. And to approach it like that would be to have the same attitude as the Pharisees and teachers of the law. And so Jesus takes us back to first principles. Have a look, flick over in your Bibles to Matthew 19. Mel will put the words up on the screen as well, but it'll be condensed a little bit, it's a bit small. So if you find it easier to look up your own Bible, have a look at that, Matthew 19, verse 3. Some Pharisees came to Jesus to test him. They asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one. Therefore what God has joined together let no one separate. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus replied, 
Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it wasn't this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. So Jesus takes us back to first principles. In the beginning, God made one man and one woman and they were joined together in lifelong union we call marriage. And so marriage is important and never to be taken lightly. Uh, This is why we should tread as carefully as we can in choosing a marriage partner. That's why we should be quick to offer as much support as we can to those enduring marriage difficulty. Initially, all divorce was inconceivable. When God made men and women, there was no allowance made for divorce. It came later as a concession to those who had experienced the ultimate betrayal. Now, just as a quick aside... Uh, In the current debate on marriage, you hear some people say that Jesus is silent on the issue, particularly of same-sex marriage. But it's not true. Have a look at at those verses again. Jesus does define marriage. And he takes us right back to Genesis 2, when God creates man and woman and marriage. And he says that marriage is between a man and a woman for life. And so any variation to that is not a marriage that aligns with God's definition and it's not a marriage that fulfills God's purpose for marriage. And so please, don't let advocates of other forms of marriage convince you otherwise. It's not true. Jesus does speak very clearly about marriage. But back to our main point. Uh, In his commentary, Peter Bolt says... Divorce is God's gracious provision into that situation of great pain in which the marriage has already been destroyed. But if someone divorces on any other grounds, he is creating rather than solving the problem of adultery. Now, this isn't all that the Bible says about divorce. There's more that we could say here, but there's enough that we've already said to really challenge our society where no-fault divorce is readily available. You see, these days, love is defined as a mixture of happiness and sexual pleasure. And marriage has become a provisional sexual union that lasts while happiness remains and sexual desire is being fulfilled. But Jesus teaches us that marriage is commitment. And when the going gets tough, marriage partners should do everything they possibly can within their means to sort out their differences in the light of Scripture. They're to hang in there and work hard at improving their relationship. Why? Because they made vows to one another before God. To love one another for better or worse, for richer or poorer, in sickness and in health until they are separated by death. In other words, in marriage, you vow to love your spouse, no matter what life throws at you, whether good or bad.
when I was preparing Hugh and Haley for their marriage next weekend, I told them the exact same thing I tell every couple who's preparing to be married, and, this is, and that is this. Your success in marriage has nothing to do with your happiness. Happiness will come and go. There'll be great times in marriage, there'll be really tough and challenging times in marriage. That doesn't make your marriage successful or not. Success in marriage is, will you remain faithful to the vows you make to one another on your wedding day? That's what successful marriage is. Now, this discussion of marriage vows... Thanks, Mel, you can put that down. This discussion of marriage vows then leads on to Jesus' teaching on oaths. Have a look at verse 33. Again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but keep the oaths you have made to the Lord. Now, oaths are designed to encourage truthfulness and to give us confidence that someone who makes a promise will keep it. And so someone will swear, you know, I swear on my children's lives, I swear on my little pinky, I swear. And there's lots of examples in the Bible where people make oaths by swearing on things. Even God swears by himself not to send another flood. He swears to send a redeemer. He swears to raise his son from the dead. The Apostle Paul calls on God as his witness. However, by the time... Well, by Jesus' time, the Jews had built up this entire legal system around this, including stipulations about when an oath was binding and when it wasn't. And often they used, what did you swear on, to determine whether the oath was binding or not. It kind of reminds me of, you know, core promises that you might hear in an election campaign. But Jesus won't allow it. Have a look at verse 34. But I tell you, do not swear at all, either by heaven for it's God's throne or by the earth for it's his footstool or by Jerusalem for it's the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head for you cannot make even one hair white or black. Simply let your yes be yes and your no, no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. And what's Jesus mean there? He's saying, well, you can, you can swear by whatever you like, but if you swear by the heaven or the earth, well, that's God's throne and footstool. If, if you want to use Jerusalem to swear, well, you've got to, you're basically swearing in God's name because that's his city. If you want to swear by the hair on your head, well, that's all well and good. It's either black or white. Without chemicals, you have no control over the colour of your hair. That's God's province. And so whenever you make an oath, you're swearing by God anyway. And so there's no such thing as a trivial oath. There's no justification for breaking an oath. All oaths are pledges of the truth. So given all that, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Tell the truth and mean it. Honour your commitments and don't renege on them. Including your marriage vows if you're married. But also other things like turning up to appointments, fulfilling ministry's responsibilities if said you'll do, making promises, don't make promises you know you won't keep. Be careful not to embellish the truth or to fudge evidence. Instead, speak honestly. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. 
it seems to me there was a pretty easy flow from adultery to marriage to oaths. Jesus now sort of goes and starts talking about revenge. I couldn't work out how they link together, but I think the last two link together, revenge and then how you treat your enemies. Have a look at verse 38. He says, you have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. We, we saw that in that Deuteronomy passage that was read out for us. But the purpose of this law was to restrict the escalation of trouble so that a minor dispute didn't end in all-out warfare. Now, I saw through the week that police released CCTV footage of the, the, the man who was shot at Bankstown Shopping Centre about a month ago now. That sort of thing captures my attention, so I had a look at it. I kind of wish I didn't now, that was a bit weird. But that shooting took place, the police believe, because of some incident that occurred about two weeks earlier. Boy, do things escalate quickly. Now, the righteousness of the Pharisees and teachers of the law was to ask, how much can I retaliate before I break the law? But Jesus says, verse 39, But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other cheek also. And if someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If someone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Now these verses have caused people great difficulty in working out, well, what's Jesus saying here? This is, not, this is what he is not saying. Right? Jesus is not saying that you need to be a doormat that just, you know, just gets walked over all the time. Jesus is not saying that it's wrong to perform the duties of a soldier or a policeman who are pretty much in the business of resisting evil people. And Jesus is not saying we should give away everything we have to everyone who comes along and asks us for things. So what is he saying? This is about living in his kingdom and your rights as a member of his kingdom... A disciple of Jesus does not have the right to retaliate and seek vengeance. God has instituted a justice system in our government. On the last day, God will bring ultimate justice. A disciple of Jesus does not have the right to their own possessions. They do not have the right to their time and money. Even their legal rights may be taken from them on occasion. If you're going to live as salt and light in the world, Jesus promises difficult times and persecution. And in the kingdom of heaven, personal sacrifice replaces personal retaliation. And this is the way Jesus himself went. He went to the cross to save us. If anybody had rights, surely it was him. But the principal conduct of the person in the kingdom of heaven is to follow the way of the cross, not to dig our heels in by sticking up for our rights. But to sacrifice. And finally, this discussion then leads on to the broader discussion of hatred and love. Have a look at verse 43. 
you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, that's not a direct quote from the Old Testament. You'll find the first half in the, the Old Testament, that's easy, love your neighbor. You don't actually find the words hate your enemy in the Old Testament. But that, that quote represented the way it was being applied in Jesus' time. People knew they had to love their neighbour, but then they thought to themselves, well, if that person's not my neighbour, who cares how I treat them? And if they're mistreating me, then all the more, I'll just ignore them or block them or have nothing to do with them or wish they were dead or... And so the question underneath all that, of course, is, well, then who then is my neighbour? Jesus addresses that in the parable of the Good Samaritan, doesn't he? Our neighbour is anyone that Jesus puts in our path. Whether we're friends with them or not, whether they're like us or very different to us, whether they're likeable or absolutely irritating. Our neighbour is the person Jesus puts in our path. Listen to what he says in verse 44. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Don't even pagans do that? You see, the righteousness of the Pharisees and teachers of the law was to love their neighbour, but they only loved people who they liked or who could reciprocate. Jesus is saying, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And the enemies he's focusing on here are those who persecute his followers because of righteousness, because they're trying to live for Jesus. And to love them and to pray for them is important to being a son of the Heavenly Father. You see, God causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. You see what's going on there? God loves everyone. In fact, God loves sinners. And what's that wonderful verse from Romans 5? God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We were his enemies and he died for us. We're to have that same attitude. Jesus showed us that attitude. On the cross he prayed, Father forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. Now, to be persecuted because of righteousness aligns us with the long line of prophets who were persecuted before us. To bless and pray for those who persecute us aligns us with the character of God. And so we are to love all people, regardless of how they treat us. This is all very hard work, isn't it? really hard work how is our righteousness to surpass that of the pharisees and teachers of the law when you sweep through matthew 5 jesus has set out a breathtaking description of morality 
which makes God himself the standard. And he summarizes it in verse 48. He says, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. We're to be holy, for the Lord our God is holy. We're to be loving, because God is love. We're to be perfect, because our heavenly Father is perfect. Now, the law and the prophets point towards Jesus. They point to the kingdom of heaven. And they point to people's need for Jesus. In these these verses, Jesus has been teaching us what it means to be a disciple in the kingdom of heaven. What it means to be salt and light in the world. And how we stand in relation to the demands of the Old Testament law. The demand is holiness, it's perfection. And of course that pushes us also into the loving arms of Jesus. Because our righteousness can only surpass that of the Pharisees and teachers of the law when we trust in the one who is perfect and holy. Now, if you're sitting here tonight thinking to yourself, man, tonight's sermon, boy, oh boy, that's really hard. And I feel totally inadequate. Then I think, please be encouraged. Because I think you've rightly understood what Jesus is teaching. It is hard. I don't know about you, there's no way I can meet that standard of perfection. But don't despair. Don't despair, that would be the wrong reaction to have right now. For in Jesus also is the good news of the gospel. He's the fulfilment of the law and the prophets, but it's in him that we also receive salvation and forgiveness. Jesus is the good news of the gospel. So I want to finish tonight in the same way I finished last week with these words that Paul wrote down for us in Romans chapter 3. This, my friends, is the good news of the gospel. He says this, But now a righteousness from God, apart from law, has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God... It comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There's no difference for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. That's the good news of the gospel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we've been challenged greatly here tonight by your words, by what Jesus has taught us about what it means to be a disciple in the kingdom of heaven. Father, we we feel a bit overwhelmed by what it means, by how deep the law goes, by how much it challenges our attitudes and our behaviour. 
and we're challenged and, and confronted by just how far short we fall. But Father, we thank you and praise you for Jesus. We thank you and praise you for your spirit who takes these words. We pray that he would take these words and, and print them on our hearts. That we might love them as we love Jesus. That we might desire to be obedient to them as we desire to be with Jesus. Father, we pray and give thanks for Jesus, who is the fulfilment of these things. We give thanks that he is the one who died for us, that enables us to be reconciled with you. And so, Father, we pray that you would help us to trust him in all things, that we might live for his honour and glory. And we ask in his name. Amen.